So, Romans 6, verses 1 to 4. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we, we who died to sin, still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Amen. May that scripture reading touch our, our hearts this morning as we, as we think about it. Well, I mean, you'd have to say that that is a pretty blunt question, isn't it? Uh, are you going to continue in sin? He doesn't beat around the bush. It's not as if Paul enters the, the living room of uh, some of the, the Roman Christians and uh, as he sips his tea and uh, engages in a little bit of social chit-chat and talks about the weather first of all and how lockdown is going for them and then eventually gets to his point, uh, he's right in there. And he says, well, are we going to continue in sin? Are you just going to continue living in the same old way that you've been living in? And of course, we know the way that they had been living because we've studied chapter 1 and chapter 2. We know that some of them were outright rank pagans living in immorality. Others were very hypocritical proud, superior religious types. And he says to them, are you, are you just going to continue to live like that? Continuing to live in sin? I mean, I'm sure a lot of them felt pretty uncomfortable with that question. You could see them reeling a little bit from that. And I think if the truth is told that there are many of us who feel uncomfortable when the word sin is used about us. And yet Paul is using that. The Bible is using that. Our Lord Jesus uses the word sin. And, and, and we should therefore ourselves accept that and take that. Sinning. Breaking the law of God. The commandments of God. Commandments that speak about honesty. About corruption about deceit, about deviousness, about faithfulness, about purity, about loving God with all our hearts and all our minds. Shock tactics can be very effective. I often think of an occasion when I was at high school in the playground, I think I've told you this before, when a couple of Christian lads bluntly said to me, are you embarrassed with us speaking about Christian things? I mean, that set me back on my heels, certainly got my attention, certainly wakened me up and made a bit of a difference. And so at the start of our year uh, this morning, there is this, there is this blunt question. We're, we're getting a bit of a, of a jolt. Are we just going to live the same old way? 
are we going to continue in sin? I mean, you would have noticed, I'm sure, that, that in fact that's only half of the question, though. Because the whole question is, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? And that's more than a question, if you think about it. That's, there's a criticism that's included in that. You see, the critics, the, the opponents of, of the gospel of God... They felt that they had identified a fatal flaw that was inherent in what Paul was preaching and what he was saying here. And this is, this is the way it went. I said, okay, Paul, uh, we hear what you're saying. In particular, we, we've read chapter 5 and verse 20, which says, where sin has abounded... Grace will much more abound. And, and Paul was very clear on that. The amazing grace of Christ. That no matter the sin that someone had committed. That God's grace can deal with that. That the sufficiency of the Lord Jesus. With his love and his kindness. Can deal with the darkest problem of people's hearts. And, and it genuinely can. And Paul, he emphasized that point. That where sin abounds, grace will much, much more abound. Ah, but they said, if you think about that, Paul, there's, there's a big flaw inherent in that. I mean, if you think about it, they say, what that effectively is, is, is teaching people is this. Uh, You've got a get-out-of-jail-free card. You know what I mean, all of you who have been playing Monopoly over the, the Christmas period. You know, if, if, if you go to jail, you've got a card that gets you out free. So, no matter what sin I commit, I mean, I can live my life in this way. Doesn't matter what I do. Doesn't matter the things that I'm involved in. I will always know in the back of my mind that, well, I'm fine. I'm okay. My sin has been dealt with. And, and, and in fact, what they're saying is this. This teaching of yours, Paul, rather than helping people, it is actually encouraging them to live sinful lives. Because that's their attitude of heart. They're, they're given a license to sin. Let's just get on with it because it doesn't matter what we do. We know that God's great. I'll always be forgiven. God will always forgive me. He will always love me. Therefore, I'm actually encouraged to sin. And so they think that they have they've discovered a big problem in the teaching of the gospel. And that's what he's dealing with here. What, what are we going to say? Is that what we're going to say? Let's continue in sin so that grace may abound? Well, what Paul is going to answer is that the critics, because they say this, they actually betray a profound misunderstanding of what God's grace actually is. Because if somebody, some of these Roman people, actually and genuinely come to real faith in the Lord Jesus, 
And they experience the forgiveness of their sins and the wonder of God's grace. What that does for them is that it becomes a driver and it becomes a motivator for righteous living. For following Christ and for living to God's glory. It doesn't do the other thing. It causes right living. And that's that's the, the overarching theme that we're talking about today. It's righteousness, right living, practical, real lives being changed. And that, that's the transition that we've come to here in Romans chapter 6. You'll probably remember that up until now, we've talked quite a lot about justification by faith. And the fact that justification means that a person is placed in a right standing with God through their faith in Christ. That all the righteousness of Christ has been credited to their account. And it's a status thing. It's how God views people through their faith in Christ. What we are now moving on to is not so much justification, but, and you'll see this twice over in the passage, uh, you'll find it in... um, Let's see, it's down at verse number 22, and I think it's at verse 19, yes, as well. The word sanctification. And sanctification really means the the process of people living increasingly righteous lives. It's lived out. It's a genuine thing. Their lives actually change. They become something better. They become like the Lord Jesus in purity and in holiness and in righteous living. And and that's actually now what we're going to be uh, speaking about. Paul is very emphatic when he comes to his answer. The answer that he gives is this, verse 2. By no means. We're, We're not going to continue in sin so that grace might abound. We're, we're never going to do that. It, it doesn't work like that. The person who is genuinely saved on the contrary. Will, will be quite different. It will never be this kind of attitude. So what he does now. Is that he begins in his answer. To this question. To walk them through. The various steps. And stages that take place in a, in a genuine Christian's life. So it starts off, step number one, if you like. Before they were a Christian, they used to live in a particular way. Their life was characterized, the old way of life, by a whole, a whole range of things. Now, step two, they have believed in Christ. They've placed all their trust in him for salvation. Step three, as they follow him, they do not habitually continue to sin. But as we have in verse four, they begin to walk in newness of life. That is the process of sanctification, of practical, lived out righteousness begins and increases to develop and they become more like the Lord Jesus. These are the stages. This is the process of what it means to become 
uh, a genuine uh, Christian. So, um, it's a very important distinction, actually, to make between justification on the one hand and sanctification. It's very important that that order is seen in the way that it's presented here. And the, and the reason I say that is that for, for many people, particularly religious people, they, 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 they actually reverse it. And there are many people, and they try to live a sanctified life, a good life, a righteous life, and, and they fail. They find that they're not able to do it. They continue to fall down. And the reason that is, is they don't have the indwelling power that comes from a changed heart. When God's Spirit comes into our hearts and makes us a new creation and we're born again and Christ dwells within us. They don't have that within them. So that they can't actually live that new life. And so it's worth us again just pausing and reflecting on that. The order to be justified first before we begin on the process of sanctification. Now, as he goes on to answer this, the key, the key word, as you will have noticed in the passage, and I'm going to spend the, the bulk of the time talking about that now, the key word is the word um, baptism. You see that there? Um, don't you know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? So he uses baptism to, to answer this criticism and to explain how the whole idea of practical righteousness works. Now, of course, baptism is, is what happened comprehensively as far as the, the early church was concerned. Um, you remember what it says in, in the book of Acts chapter 2, the very first day when the church was born, that those that received the word of Peter when he preached, everyone who received that word and believed it, they were baptized. And of course that is entirely consistent with the, the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, his great commission. Uh, to his disciples before his ascension to heaven to make disciples from all the nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and, and that's what they did and we read the book of Acts and wherever they went, wherever they traveled including Rome, this is what happened people believed and then they were, they were baptized and so Nothing magical happened to them because of this water. It wasn't kind of holy water that somehow or another uh, had religious connotations that, that changed them. It wasn't the water as such, but there was a profound symbolism that was part and parcel of, of what that signified. And the interesting thing, of course, is that when we compare the New Testament and the church with the Old Testament... And look at the whole uh, propensity of ritualism. Uh, there are actually only two rituals compared, compared to all the ritualism of the Old Testament. Only two in the New. And these ordinances are baptism. The other one being the Lord's Supper. Uh, which we are, we are going to, we're going to celebrate this evening in this evening's uh, service. And, and what baptism speaks of 
It symbolizes a spiritual reality that had occurred within the hearts and within the minds and within the, within the souls of, of these people. Now, the word baptism, as many of you will know, is a kind of transliteration word. What it really means, the word means to dip or to immerse, as in immerse in water, to dip in water. And, and what he's saying here is that uh, don't you know that we have been immersed into Christ? We have been dipped into Christ's death. Don't you remember that that's what it means? Go back to that day and that time when, when you were baptized. And remember that that was the, that was the symbolism of, of that event. So what does that actually mean? What is that spiritual reality that is symbolized in this baptism? Well, the, the, the reality of it is this. That being immersed into Christ's death, being united, uh, Bruce used that word in, in the introduction, in the same way as you go into water and, and you're, you're one with the water, you're united to it. There is a sense in which for the Christian, they are united to Christ in his death. So I look to the cross of Calvary and I see the dying Savior there, the Lord Jesus Christ. And I am united to him in his death in the sense that all my sin was laid upon him. Jesus bore them on the tree. God who knew them laid them on him. And believing, I am free. He died for my sin. The just for the unjust. So that he might take me to God. And on the cross the Lord Jesus had the sin of the world including my sin, placed upon him. He became accountable for that. He became responsible for that. And that's why we hear the words from the darkness, My God, why have you forsaken me? That's why at the Garden of Gethsemane, on the night prior to the crucifixion, he sweat like drops of blood falling to the ground when he said, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Is it possible? He knew what lay before him, the enormous suffering of being made accountable for the sin of humanity. Now, when I look at the cross and I see Christ and it comes home to me, the individual nature of that, that he died for me and I have faith In Christ's death for me, I am united to Christ by faith. And that's what it means when it says this, verse number 2. How can we who died to sin continue to live in it? Now that is different than what we often talk about being dead in sin. Being dead to sin means the fact that That my sins 
were nailed to the cross. That's what Colossians says. He nailed them to the cross and he dealt with them. And my sins are now gone because I don't have to myself be accountable for them anymore. Christ has done that. He has dealt with them. And so God has cast them into the sea of his forgetfulness. And though my sins were like scarlet, they're now white as snow. And the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, has cleansed me, washed me from all my sin. And the sin is, is done. It's gone. It's dead. Now that, that's the idea of being united to Christ in his death, being immersed into Christ, being baptized into Christ. And so what he's saying to the people is this. Don't you know what baptism means? Don't you remember? Maybe he's saying to some of them who have not been baptized, he said, uh, this is expected of you. In fact, this is, this is commanded of you uh, by, by the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, what, what's stopping you being baptized? It's such a profound thing. It's a tremendously powerful, symbolic thing. It just says everything about what it means to be a believer in Christ. That, that you're united to him in his death and your sins are gone. You've died to sin. Of course, we know, don't we? Well, maybe some of you don't know that underneath this platform here, if we lifted some of these bits, there is a baptismal tank. hasn't been used, actually, for some time. You know? and, and maybe there are some of you here, uh, and you now feel that you should be baptized. Because it's such a profound, significant thing. And we would be very, very willing to do that for you. But maybe he's also speaking to the people here who have been baptized, which would be the majority. And really what he's saying to them is this. Go back. Remember, in your mind, that moment, the occasion that it took place. And, and, and try to call to your mind once more the meaning and the significance of your baptism. This is what your baptism meant. And that's why he says here in verse number 3, Do you not know that all of us who were baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? Remember that. Know that. And move forward. How can you possibly continue to live in sin? And to continue in sin when you recognize what your baptism means. You've died to sin. And you've been raised into newness of life to follow Christ in that way. So, it's inevitable, just to conclude. It's inevitable, I think. And this is what Paul is really concluding. This is the point he's coming up to. That the person who is the true Christian will live in a new way. They will live in a, in a way that is righteous. Now, if you want to get some of the specifics of what that means, Paul, Paul for instance, lists quite a number of these things. In, in, in chapter 12, you might want to just turn to that just now. 
This is what it actually means. Let's not be vague. Let's not just speak in generalities. What is a life that is genuinely righteous? What does it look like? Well, chapter nine, 12, uh, verse 9. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints. Seek to show hospitality. And so it goes on. These are practical examples of a righteous life. Of a righteous life. And that is the way that Christian people should live. So this morning we've been asked a question. And uh, that question is about how Christian people should live their lives. And we've been given the answer. And the answer is in terms of the meaning of Christian baptism. We won't continue to sin as Christians. We will not continue to live in that old way of life because we know what our baptism symbolizes. I'm dead to that. I'm alive to Christ. My sin has been dealt with. How could I possibly continue to live in sin? So this is the word of God for us this morning at the start of this new year. And may God bless it to us. And as I said previously, if anyone is interested to speak about baptism, uh, only too happy to do that. And uh, the baptismal tank can be open at any time. Now shall we uh, pray and then we'll sing our final hymn. Lord, thank you for these moments, this short hour uh, within our week, when we meet with believers in Christ, when we meet with you, when the Bible is read, when our thoughts are recalibrated, when we are taught the truth of Scripture. And Lord, we think of this point that has been emphasized in these verses for us today. And we ask that as we go from this place, that your Holy Spirit will continue to teach that message in our hearts and lives. Help us, as your people, to live in the light of the meaning of our baptism to live lives that demonstrate that we have died to sin and that we are alive to Christ. And how could we possibly continue to live in that old way of life? So Lord, we pray a blessing into the hearts of every single person who is here today as we ask through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.